Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. Dr. Travis Brown, I just want to uh, confess something to you. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's something I'm not very good at. What's that? Smoking. <laughs> I tried. In my late teens, I tried because it was cool and I just coughed and spluttered. I did three attempts and that was it. I haven't, nothing like that has ever passed my lips <laughs> or my lungs since. I just can't do it. Now I have to ask, is this, was this a cigarette as in your normal cigarettes or did we go down the line of rolling your own and trying that or, or even, even pipes, cigars? No, because mm-hmm. once I'd, I'd fallen at the first hurdle, I just gave up. Maybe this is showing I've got a weak personality <laughs> and I don't have the grit and resilience. I could be smoking myself with rolled my own rollies. Well, it's probably be- it's probably better that you're not, uh, as you will see uh, today. So, uh, yes, we are talking about smoking cigarettes, uh, and at the end we'll discuss vaping, which is the new thing in yes. vogue, really. So, And one other thing just, I just remembered as a young boy at Christmas, because back then when I was a young boy in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, uh, aunts, uncles, everyone just be smoking all mm. in the one room and there was an ashtray that my auntie had been using. I thought, that looks fun. And I went, and I just blew into it, and it went around and all back in my eyes. And that was that took you know, a good half an hour of tears to get rid of the... Now, can I ask, did your... Now, your clearly your aunties and uncles smoked. Yep. Did your family... They're all dead your, now. Your, well, right, that'd okay. be a lesson. Right, okay. Did your direct family, your, your mum, your dad... No. No, no, they were smoking. Did they have any... Uh, uh, did they have any attitudes towards smoking, or was it they just didn't? Uh, if anything, it was just the smell. I, I think there was a sense of not wanting to bring that smell into the house. Right. Okay. That's, that's okay. what I'd put it down to. Yeah. I don't okay. think it was ever really voiced. It just mm. wasn't a thing we did. Yeah. No. Well, look, well, the the history of smoking goes back uh, thousands of years. In in fact, we know that uh, wild tobacco grew in the Americas. You know, approximately you know, eight thousand years ago, and in around 2,000 uh, years, tobacco has been chewed or it has been uh, smoked. Sometimes it had a cultural element or a religious involved in ceremonies, and sometimes it was just a stimulant that you know people used because they enjoyed it. Uh, the first European to discover it was Christopher Columbus, the smoking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... From there, you know, in in 1531, uh, tobacco was cultivated in Europe uh, for the first time in in, uh, Santo Domingo, uh, and it started then to spread. So in about 1600s, we've got, uh, you know, tobacco spreading across Europe and and England. Uh, And it was also used as a monetary standard. So this is, uh, you know, part of the the culture, but, you know, uh, was was worth uh, worth something. We probably understand that it is a monetary standard because I believe at the moment a packet of cigarettes is about the same value as a nugget of gold, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's keep, it keeps on going up in uh, in price these mm. days, which we'll discuss a little bit later okay. as well. So uh, and it's interesting, in 1602, there was a, an uh, anonymous Elizabethan author uh, in England who called himself Philaretes, uh, who published a booklet titled Work for Chimney Sweeps. Uh, and it's interesting because this author, who was clearly very intelligent, most likely a doctor who treated nobility, he linked that diseases that were experienced by these young boys. So, I mean, if we take a di- you know a digression here, uh, and we look, well, chimney sweeps you know operated between 1600s and the late 1800s, and they were normally young boys between the ages of four and seven, and they normally were American and had really bad English accent. Oh no, that's Dick Van Dyke <laughs> from Mary Poppins. Well, they had no, they had uh, they would go up and down chimneys. Uh, they were often from poor families, and they were often from uh, or either that or orphans, mm-hmm. and they would have a master, and they would have to climb up these chimneys with a broom and a scraper, and 
get all the soot off, that then they would climb up to the top, all the soot would fall down the bottom, they would climb back down, grab the soot, and then the master would sell that to farmers for fertiliser. Oh, wow. So it was a whole... Ecosystem. Yeah, exactly. But these kids were treated pretty poorly. They were inhaling the stuff. Mm. It was not unusual for them to either get stuck or get injured and sometimes even die. And the reason why, it started to be regulated in the late 1800s, but the only reason it did was that's a few hundred years worth and kids were dying and they were saying this is unacceptable. It's quite amazing. And these, these boys, they might have a bath a year. They were usually poorly fed and they would sleep in basements. Uh, so they were poorly treated. And if the boys were slow to do their job or reluctant to climb up a dirty chimney, the master would light a torch under their feet. And that's where we get the phrase to light a fire under someone. Wow. All right. And so it was not a pleasant job. No. uh, And children could die. And again, they had falls injuries. So they would get twisted, uh, either deformed ankles because they were young and they were having to push their their legs up. Mm. They could get twisted kneecaps and patellas or twisted spines. Mm. They would get inflammatory eye conditions because of the soot. Uh, They had respiratory illnesses. And then later on, it was uh, discovered that adolescents could get what they called chimney sweep cancer. And this was a painful and fatal cancer of the scrotum. They often worked naked. Oh. And so, and then they didn't clean. So the irritant from the coal tar would cause problems and cause a scrotal cancer, which was often fatal. And so when we look at this booklet, which was a few hundred years before, the 1600s, work for chimney sweepers, he's suggested that this smoking this tobacco could be a venom or a poison. Now, it's not clear what his motives were because it was anonymous and it was an opinion, didn't have it with any evidence. So it's sort of hard to, was this person actually selling something else and saying this new thing coming on the market? Because it's only 1600, it's only been around for you know, 30, 40, 50 years. And they didn't put their name to it. So that's always a little bit of a challenge. Mm. Why wouldn't you put your name to it? Mm. But this was contrary to most beliefs. And they, they, they remained anonymous. No one smoked them out. No, no they didn't. Right. So it was one of those things. But at this time, smoking was used for leisure. It was also used for medicine. And so people would get this ailment and they would say, well, if you've got a lung, smoke it out. And so often this author suggested that that would probably make things worse for you. Mm. Uh, they are right, but a lot of their rationality was wrong. So when, when they were explaining that, you know, someone who is a larger person, he wrote fat, when they started smoking, they actually lost weight. So he thought that the reason you lost weight is because you lost the food value that you're eating. Now, that's not right. You actually increase your metabolism, but that's the kind of he was in the right area, but that's where he was thinking. Hmm. And so this brings us to 1795. We have Samuel Thomas von Semmering of Maine in Germany, and he noticed that pipe smokers started to get lip cancers. And then in 1798, we have the U.S. physician Benjamin Rush, who wrote about medical dangers of tobacco. But again, it's not until mid to late 1800s that the machine industry, the tobacco industry, started getting machines to increase the amount. Now, their first machines could make about 200 cigarettes per minute. Oh, wow. I was expecting per day. (laughs) Per minute. (laughs) Per minute. But today's machines can produce up to 9,000 cigarettes per minute. Per minute. And then we have the 20th century, where big tobacco starts becoming quite powerful, but the medical industry and government starting to recognise, is there a problem with this product? You know, if you were to follow a busy doctor as he makes his daily round of calls, you'd find yourself having a mighty busy time keeping up with him. Time out for many men of medicine usually means just long enough to enjoy a cigarette. And because they know what a pleasure it is to smoke a mild, good-tasting cigarette, they're particular about the brand they choose. In a repeated national survey, doctors in all branches of medicine, doctors in all parts of the country were asked, what cigarette do you smoke, doctor? 
Once again, the brand named most was Camel. Yes, according to this repeated nationwide survey, more doctors smoke Camels than any other cigarette. Why not change to Camels for the next 30 days and see what a difference it makes in your smoking enjoyment? See how Camels agree with your throat. See how mild and good tasting a cigarette can be. Things are about to get even more interesting in this discussion about tobacco and uh, the realization that things might not be as they seem uh, and it does bring back memories as a stan freeberg comedy skit from many years ago i think it involves columbus trying to explain what you do with this new product mm-hmm. it was bringing back and it's actually quite hilarious but the laughter stops when you look at what we're about to go into now which is uh, that realization of hmm Houston, we've got a problem if we want to keep milking people uh, with their tobacco money. There is, and and this is uh, a very interesting area. What you find there's a wonderful document uh, by the World Health Organization called "In Their Own Words," which we're using here, and we have Charlie, our podcast producer, who is taking the role of tobacco, the PR firms, the lawyers, uh, the executives themselves. So these are memos they've written or have been documented that they've been said or written. Uh, So to give the the listener the the view of what the tobacco was saying at the time as evidence grows, and we have Steve who will be our voice of the government, of of medical institutions, of, of research scientists, to say, when did people know, and then what was the strategies employed? So I'm glad you've both typecast us. <laughs> I'm playing the virtuous roles, and, and I'm going to read all of Charlie's memos in a new light now. Well, I'm trying to work out, or sit there just going, do we make Charlie the, the voice of the government? Or I, I wasn't quite sure, and then I asked Charlie, and she's happy to take tobacco. So, you know, this is where we, we start to see we're at the start of the 1900s. Uh, and this is where, in, in 1912, we have Dr. Isaac Aldler, uh, who wrote a, an article that's called Primary Malignant Growth of the Lung and Bronchi. Now, lung cancer was a rare condition. Uh, it's now much more common, as we will discuss soon. But in this document, or in this article, Dr. Aldler noted, in a very 1912 way, some uh, comments. It has always been maintained that males are by far more frequently subject to lung tumours than females. The domestic life led by women, with their consequent retirement and immunity from the irritations and traumatisms which must be frequent in the more unprotected life of men, the abuse of tobacco and alcohol, the many trades and vocations which are accompanied by irritations of the respiratory organs. So this is them trying to work out why are men getting more sick with these tumours than women? Uh, we do still still don't have a good explanation today, but he's saying, well, it's because of work and you work in a bad environment. Uh, and the 1930s comes along and we start getting more case reports and more case series of patients with lung cancer who smoked heavily. So the the hints are starting to, a link is starting to be made by by people writing case reports. And we have 1939 with Dr. Muller, who compared 86 men uh, in hospital with lung cancer with men in other wards of the hospital without lung cancer. And you notice there was a much more likelihood that people with lung cancer were heavier smokers than those that weren't. And so we, that brings us to the 1950s, where we get the change. So if we look at the US and we look at per capita cigarettes, so population-based, in the 1900s, per person, it was 54 per year. That's sort of a, a weekly treat. So, yeah. So and, and then if we go into 1963, that is raised to 4,345 per year. So now, not everyone smokes, so someone's doing much more than that. But as a recognition, that's how much tobacco is increasing over 60 years. And so in 1900s, lung cancer is rare. And then in 1950s, by this stage, it's the most common cancer in men. And studies are searching for the linkage. And there's two main ones. There's 
Winder and Graham, who released a, a report in May of 1950, and there's Dole and Hill in September of 1950. That's also known as the British Doctor Study, which we'll come back to. And there was a number of other case control studies that came out from the journal Cancer Research and, and JAMA. The criticism of all these studies, though, was that a causal link had not been established. These are all, you know, they were retrospective. But again, we're starting to get into the murky situation of criticism coming of a quite a powerful industry by this stage. And so the two studies that we will uh, discuss a little bit further, the first one was released in January in 1952, uh, which was Hammond and Horn. And Hammond and Horn got 22,000 American Cancer Society volunteers to recruit men between the ages of 50 to 69 years of age. They end up getting about 188,000 men that they followed up for the next three years. And so the entire purpose was to do their smoking history. How much they smoked? Had they smoked before? What type did they smoke? So this is either pipe or cigar or cigarettes. Each volunteer had about five to ten men that they had to follow up. And then each time they caught up with them, they had to report, was the patient alive dead or unknown. And if they were dead, the the researchers would then go and find the death certificate. What did they die of? And by August 1954, they ended up sign- sending some preliminary findings to the Journal of the American Medical Association, and they stated their preliminary findings. It was found that men with a history of regular cigarette smoking have a considerably higher death rate than men who have never smoked or men who have smoked only cigars or pipes. Deaths from cancer were definitely associated with regular cigarette smoking. The death rate from lung cancer was much higher among men with a history of regular cigarette smoking than among men who never smoked regularly. The authors, who are doctors who were heavy smokers themselves, were so convinced that they changed their smoking from cigarettes to pipe smoking. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Which eventually they found the link to as well, a little bit later. And so we first have, in 1954, a large-scale prospective study, and they concluded... We are of the opinion that the associations found between regular cigarette smoking and death rates from diseases of the coronary arteries and between regular cigarette smoking and death rates from lung cancer reflect cause and effect relationships. So this then takes us to the British Doctor Study by Dolan Hill. Now, it's called the Doctor Study because they sent out almost 60,000 questionnaires about the smoking habits of doctors. And so they ended up getting around 40,000 responses. And by the time in 1954, they had a linkage of tobacco smoking with cause-specific mortality, the increased death rate due to lung cancer. And then in 1956, they had the increased risk of heart attacks and myocardial infarctions, as well as emphysema, COPD. And so in 1953, cigarette companies are starting to become very aware of the bad press that's coming their way, and the public relations firms are employed. We have one essential job, which can be simply said, stop public panic. There is only one problem, confidence, and how to establish it, public assurance, and how to create it. And most important, how to free millions of Americans from the guilty fear that is going to arise deep in their biological depths, regardless of any poo-pooing logic every time they light a cigarette. Wow, it's so fascinating to hear the PR industry up close on that. But a quick question without notice. That was from a study of doctors. If you went to a doctor today who smoked, would you feel comfortable with their advice? (laughs) I was surprised. I one time took a course, and this is not that long ago, and the person who was giving the lectures went out for a break and had a cigarette. (sighs) (laughs) And I can't, it was one of those moments where it's like, oh, just not practicing what you preach. Mm. It put a hesitation in my mind, Mm. but it was just 
Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I, I just would, it would just, it's, it's the highest standard and, thing. And here's the thing. You realize these are the people who have all the knowledge available to them mm. and yet how powerful this nicotine is. And, and I wonder, do they want to stop? Do they know? But Well, that's true. We have interviewed Dr. James Mukey before and I still eat sugar. So <laughs> I cannot throw the first stone. <laughs> so... We then have uh, the UK government in 1954, who has now received this information about the UK, uh, sorry, the British doctor study, and the findings, and the Minister of Health uh, comes out and makes a statement. I have come to the conclusion that the statistical evidence does point to a causal relationship between tobacco smoking and lung cancer, but that there are important qualifications. There is no precise evidence of how tobacco smoking causes lung cancer or indeed of the extent to which one causes the other. So a bit of an equivocal statement, but one that's suggesting there's a problem here. But the tobacco industry have their own statement. There still isn't a single shred of substantial evidence to link cigarette smoking and lung cancer directly. By 1958... The British and American Tobacco Company have scientists do a what they call a study tour and go to several research institutions to find out what evidence is out there. And they conclude... With one exception, the individuals with whom we met believe that smoking causes lung cancer. If, by causation we mean any chain of events which leads finally to lung cancer and which involves smoking as an indispensable link. However, in discussions, there could be a potential advantage in this. Evidence is building up that heavy smoking contributes to lung cancer. If we could find the intestinal fortitude to jump on the other side of the fence admitting that cigarettes are hazardous, just look what a wealth of ammunition would be at our disposal to attack the other companies who did not have safe cigarettes. In 1962, the Royal College of Physicians, uh, that is from the United Kingdom, mm -hmm. uh, issues the first major report and statement on smoking. Cigarette smoking is a cause of lung cancer and bronchitis. Cigarette smoking is the most likely cause of the recent worldwide increase in deaths from lung cancer. So that's the definitive statement. Uh, in 1964, a similar statement is made by the US Surgeon General. And then we have the director of Philip Morris issuing their own statement. We don't accept the idea that there are harmful agents in tobacco. By the mid-1960s, the cigarette companies are wanting to find a new strategy. The main power on the smoking and health situation undoubtedly rests with the lawyers. The US cigarette manufacturers are not looking for means to reduce the long-term activity of cigarettes. By 1968, the strategy has changed to muddying the waters. The most important type of story is that which cast out in the cause and effect theory of disease and smoking. Eye-grabbing headlines are needed and should strongly call out the point. Controversy, contradiction, other factors, unknowns. In 1970, the head of research and development for Philip Morris states... Let's face it, we are interested in the evidence which we believe denies the allegations that cigarette smoking causes disease. Now, there are many memorandums about deniability and risks alienating intelligent people and doctors, but by 1975, they were employing a different strategy. As a company, we do not make, indeed we are not qualified to make, medical judgments. We are therefore not in a position either to accept or to reject statements made by the Minister of Health. And by the 1980s, an internal document show where big tobacco is at. The company's position on causation is simply not believed by the overwhelming majority of independent observers, scientists and doctors. The industry is unable to argue satisfactorily for its own continued existence because all arguments eventually lead back to the primary issue of causation and at this point our position is unacceptable. 
Our position on causation, which we have maintained for some 20 years in order to defend our industry, is in danger of becoming the very factor which inhibits our long-term viability. On balance, it is the opinion of this department that we should now move to position B, namely that we acknowledge the probability that smoking is harmful to a small percentage of heavy smokers. By giving a little, we may gain a lot. By giving nothing, we stand to lose everything. And in 1982, the US Surgeon General states, Cigarette smoking is the chief, single, avoidable cause of death in our society and the most important public health issue of our time. But by 1989, tobacco industry has come full circle and this statement sums up their approach. The view that smoking causes specific diseases remains an opinion or a judgment and not an established scientific fact. So we we have the memorandums from the tobacco industry. So from the early 1960s, they knew of the addictive capabilities of nicotine and they knew this was the reason people continued to smoke. In 1994, the CEOs of large tobacco companies testified in front of Congress that nicotine is not addictive. So throughout the decades, we also see that there have been different strategies from the tobacco industry. They have marketed to children and they marketed it as an adult product, knowing that advertising that as an adult product would encourage children who wanted to be Mm. more Adult, cool, grown exactly. up. Yeah. Exactly. They also advertised it as rebellious or self-confident and as a freedom. For men, they made it masculine, and for women, they made it feminine. Mm-hmm. And so the two most successful advertising campaigns, and I'm sure everyone knows it, is the Marlboro Cowboy mm-hmm. and the cartoon Joe the Camel. And they advertise in sporting and racing and mag- magazines, and these were incredibly effective. Now, this story paints Big Tobacco as a quintessential bad guy. And it's easy because they are. (laughs) (laughs) But this is not a good guy versus bad guy story. And the reason that is because when we start to look at it, it's important to note that this has been about 60 or 70 years worth of government warnings. Don't smoke, it's bad for you. But there's no ban. It's still a product that can be purchased legally and even responsible for millions of deaths. Let's use Australia as an example. The licensing fee started in 1975. The government received, now this isn't adjusted for... for Inflation. Mm -hmm. $2 million from the tobacco industry for licensing fees. In 1992, this was over $1 billion. Mm. And in 2000, licensing fees were $3.3 billion. The revenue from tobacco companies, now this one is adjusted, to 2012, in 1975, it was $3.2 billion. In 1992, that was $2.2 billion, but that's plus licensing fees as well. Oh, okay. And then in 2000, licensing fees were done away with, but that's because they increased the taxes on direct tobacco products. So in 2001... There's $6.3 billion of taxes that the federal government got. In 2012, that was 6.5. 2019, that was $12.2 billion. And it's estimated to be in 2020, $17 billion. Wow. So this is a bad guy versus someone on the take. (laughs) And so. It's a hard habit to give up that revenue. Well, that's right. So that's where we are. The government knows it's bad and telling us it's bad, but if you take it, we're going to earn lots of money from the tobacco industry. Let's come back and look at this from the body's perspective through the lens of pathology. Let me uh, begin my questioning on the matter of uh, whether or not nicotine is addictive. Let me ask you first, I'd like to just go down the row Uh, whether each of you believes uh, that nicotine is not addictive. I heard virtually all of you touch on it, just yes or no. Do you believe nicotine is not addictive? I believe nicotine is not addictive, yes. Mr. Johnston. Uh, Congressman, 
Cigarettes and nicotine clearly do not meet the classic definitions of addiction. There is no intoxication. We'll we'll take that as a no, and again, time is short. If you could just, I think each of you believe nicotine is not addictive. We just would like to have this for the record. I don't believe that nicotine or our products are addictive. I believe nicotine is not addictive. I believe that nicotine is not addictive. I believe that nicotine is not addictive. All right, we've just finished all the history of the tobacco giants' fight, so let's exhale now and inhale uh, without a cigarette in our mouths to look at um, tobacco and the body as your core role as a pathologist. So this takes us, we've had many years of being able to collect data on what smoking does, what tobacco does to our bodies. And so... It's important to note, as we we mentioned at the start, cigarettes is one, but there's also other forms of smoking. One's called snuff, which is dried tobacco. I, I believe you inhale. Um, um, yes, I think one of my uncles had a little snuff box. Well, I used to think snuff was cocaine or something to that, but there's also dried tobacco because that's why anatomically it's called the snuff oh, box down in the yes. – people would put snuff between just the bottom of your uh, thumb. I you lived- lift up your thumb. I lived a sheltered life because I thought it was crushed up Pez, you know, those candy. That's what I thought it was. That, you, that ex- you sniffed as Pez? That explains my reactions. All right. So it's it was one of those uh, smokeless, so snuff, but you can also chew it. And we also know that now that that does increase your risk of oral cancer, wow. chewing tobacco. But the World Health Organization uh, states that tobacco is responsible for over uh, 8 million deaths worldwide per year. If we look at the US, they have around 480,000 deaths per year responsible for from tobacco. UK, 78,000 per year. And Australian, we have around 15,500 per year. So this is still a pretty big uh, problem. The top smoking uh, countries, uh, Kiribati is an island in the central Pacific Ocean, uh, which has a population of 120,000. It has a smoking population. Uh, their population, 52% of their population smokes. With- I, I can understand it because the air there would be so pure <laughs> that it'd be too pure and you'd want to just dilute well, it down a 64% bit. 64% of males smoke and 41% wow. of females smoke. It's sad, there. isn't it? Uh, we have uh, the third top is Greece with 43% of the population smoking. Uh, you know, fourth, fifth and sixth are Serbia, Russia and Jordan with around 41% of their population smoking. Now, almost all of them, except for one country, uh, Vanuatu, uh, males smoke more than females. Um, I'm not quite sure why that is, mm. uh, but that's just the statistics. If we look at China, China has 25% of its population that smokes, 50% of the males smoke, and like 1% to 2% of the females smoke. Gee. So I'm not quite sure why that is. Uh, and if we look at, the, again, what I've mentioned, so the United States, 17% of the population smoke, 20% male, 15% female. UK, 19% of the population with a 2018 split. And then Australia, 15% with a 17 13 uh, split. So this is still a big problem. Uh, we've got some of the probably the most progressive laws against public smoking, uh, which, is, which is important for our public health. Um, but what do we know? Well, we know that the more you smoke and the longer you smoke, uh, the more likely you're going to die earlier. And so we call it pack years. Uh, so we get the average number of cigarettes smoked per day yeah. multiplied by the time, uh, like the years you've smoked. And that gives us a measure. So if someone smoked for three years, but they smoked 40 a day, you know, versus someone smoked, you know, 10 for over you know, 10 years, you get to actually sort of normalize it in type way. But the higher the figure the worse the prognosis. It just appears to me, and it's hard for me to take the high moral ground because I can't smoke. I just My body just won't let me smoke. But it's like playing a game of Russian roulette and just keeping on going around and around and around. It's a, like in that situation, you know, Deer Hunter, Robert De Niro, <laughs> you do it once and that's it. You count your lucky stars. Well, the, the thing is we, we know from evidence that seven out of ten smokers want to stop. Yeah, that's true. And yeah. so it is a yeah. really hard thing. And that's and that's why that 
that statement from the tobacco CEOs is so galling is that the whole point, if you take nicotine out of smoking, uh, you know, it's the stimulant uh, mm. with regards to it, but would they then have a product? Interesting. <laughs> Before we finish this whole episode, I want to talk about the substitute, the vaping, which is quite popular. We'll come back to that we'll soon, come, yes. Okay. And so if we actually look at cigarettes, though, uh, the chemicals in them is just mind-boggling because there's around, on average, 2,000 to 4,000 chemicals per cigarette. And so I don't know how that happens because you sit there and go, we also know straight up there's over 60 known carcinogens, things that will cause cancer in that cigarette. And you would think that some point in time there would have been a board meeting say, hey, why don't we take out those 60? And I can't work out, did well, it happen or did they not or did they? Well, when you're on a good thing, <laughs> stick to it. <laughs> and so if we look at the physiological effects, cigarette smoke is a direct irritant to the lung lining, so what we call the tracheobronchial mucosa. You get inflammation caused by the smoke, increased mucus, and so you get an increased risk of bronchitis, so inflammation of the bronchi. Um, inflammation can cause what we call metaplasia. So if you think about it with your lungs, you've got like finger-like little cilia that keeps on pushing mucus out so that if you get inhale some particles, the cilia will push it out. Well, smoking kills them. And if, it, if you do it for long enough, what we call is it changes from one tissue type, so those little cilia, to a squamous cell, which is like on your skin. Mm. So it it's, can oh. deal with abrasion. The problem with that is that's a pre-malignant condition that can form squamous cell carcinoma. And so you then have this inflammation, metaplasia, carcinogenesis pathway, but that's not the only pathway. You can have inflammation, destruction of tissue, and you get emphysema because all the airways have d died or expanded because of all the inflammation. And so you have trouble breathing because you have air trapping and non-functioning alveoli. That's not mentioning anything about when you've got bronchitis, you're increasing your risk of infection. So mm. you'll be more unwell yeah. often. That's the thing, lung cancer. It's the leading cause of men's cancer worldwide. And it's number two for women, second only after breast cancer. We also know it's associated with other cancers, such as esophagus, pan pancreas, kidney, bladder, bone marrow, and cervix. It's associated with those cancers too. So you'll have an increased risk of cancer in those areas if you smoke. Yes. And so you also have increased cardiovascular risk. So atherosclerosis and smoking narrows arteries. And so you have an increased risk of heart attacks, myocardial infarctions. I miss those bits in the Marlboro Man ads where I'm sure he would have mentioned that. <laughs> he, he did later on. Yeah, he did. Uh, and then we also have the risk of pregnancy. So uh, uh, You can mother... get pregnant from smoking. <laughs> well, well, I've got to read that textbook a little bit. <laughs> no. Uh, but if you, have, uh, if you are pregnant, it affects the fetus. And they, you, women have an increased risk of spontaneous abortion. You can have preterm births low birth weight, intrauterine growth retardation. And then we come to the last area with environmental smoke, secondhand smoke. Oh, yes. So when you're breathing that in, people exposed to secondhand smoke have an increased risk of lung cancer themselves. And so the US estimates around 10% of their lung cancers are due to secondhand smoke. So they say about 41,000 lung cancers or deaths per year are due to environmental or secondhand smoke. Which is really interesting because I've been having some counter meals uh, during the, the last few weeks and there's a beer garden where people can smoke. Mm. And if someone orders a meal out there, the staff are not allowed to take it to them. They bring it inside and the patron has to come in from the smoke yard yeah. uh, and grab their food and take them back. And I thought, that just seems petty <laughs> official bureau bureaucracy, but... No, well, that's a public health measure. And there was a successful case decades ago about a, a person, a waitress, who sued their oh. employer because she got cancer yeah. from working in a smoke environment. So Australia has some of the most progressive... Uh, and probably aggressive anti-smoking mm. campaigns, which is unusual for us when we go overseas and people are just smoking. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's sort of a... Mind you, the wind just blows the smoke in from the beer garden <laughs> into the venue, but... Well, that's you know, right. Well, I did... I had brothers who uh, were older and sort of enjoyed the nightclubs, but it used to be that you would they would go out and you would smell of smoke because yeah. it was in the pub. That was just how your room smelt yeah. after, you know, after a night out. But not and, you, just your older brother. <laughs> No, I was too busy playing basketball. Uh, but what they had was that's that's sort of the laws that have come through. So not only that, the risk of coronary artery disease and myocardial infarction, 30 to 60,000 associated deaths with environmental smoke. And so what we find is that there is one glimmer of hope and that people who cease smoking greatly reduce their risk oh. within five years after they've stopped smoking. And so their overall mortality reduces and the risk of coronary vascular disease reduces. It gets reduces within about 21% within five years. However, there is an excess risk that persists for over 30 years. So it's still there, but there is hope if someone does stop. All right. Well, let's come back for the final section in just a moment because I'm just choosing whether to have another cup of coffee or a coffee-flavoured vape. Ladies and gentlemen, the late Yul Brynner. I really wanted to make a commercial when I discovered that I was that sick and my time was so limited. I wanted to make that commercial that says simply, now that I'm gone, I tell you, don't smoke. Whatever you do, just don't smoke. If I could take back that smoking, we wouldn't be talking about any cancer. I'm convinced of that. All right, I actually didn't vape because I don't vape, but lots of people do, Dr. Travis Brown, should they? Well, it depends. I guess it depends on which side of the fence you're on at the moment. So, look, vaping's also known as heated tobacco. Oh. And so... If we look at e-cigarettes, they're, they're often referred to as. They, they entered the market, first of all, in China in 2003, uh, and then the US and European markets in 2006. And this was with very little government regulation. Uh, now, e-cigarettes, they can also be called uh, electronic nicotine delivery system, or ENDS, uh, <laughs> has a cartridge. And, and so I had to sort of look at it and try and work out, well, what is it? I don't vape. So uh, effectively, you get three main elements. You get a liquid something called an atomizer and a battery. And the atomizer is a vaporization chamber, which has a heated element in it. And so the user presses a button, activates the atomizer, uh, it heats it, turns the liquid into vapor or an aerosol, and you inhale. Mm -hmm. And not only that, you then perform, because I do a lot of theatre reviewing, and the people in the theatre circles have taken to vaping, and they like being seen vaping. <laughs> well, you can't miss it. I have sat behind a car, and I thought the car was on fire when someone was vaping because the smoke that filled that the, the vapor, yeah, yeah yes. exactly, was it was it, I couldn't see through it. Yeah, uh, and then the, the window just it gushes out. So I, I'm I'm amazed at how much smoke uh, is is created. But look. The, the vaping products contains less chemicals, mm -hmm. and we'll discuss some of the ingredients here, but it's still an unknown quantity in, in, in the most part. Okay. And so research is suggestive it's bad for you, but not as bad as just normal cigarettes. Mm -hmm. So we know that nicotine is addictive. Uh, it, there is a toxicity element to it. It's not a carcinogen, but it does increase your blood pressure, and it spikes adrenaline. So that's part of probably the buzz about it. Uh, but we don't know the long-term consequences of the chemicals in vaping. So how strong is the association? There seems to be some association with chronic lung disease, with a bit of asthma and cardiovascular disease. But the cardiovascular disease is often associated because people who vape tend to also smoke traditional cigarettes as well. And so oh, the cardiovascular disease, it's a bit mixed uh, as to what that does. So the interesting thing about e-cigarettes is they seem to be as addictive as, as normal cigarettes, but inexperienced users don't get as much as a nicotine hit as normal cigarettes. Oh. 
but those who are experienced get more of a nicotine. Why is that? Because they know how to breathe and they know how to inhale it, but they can also get things like extra strength cartridges. Uh, increase voltage and you also know how it's just like exercise you exercise you're going to be able to do it so if you're really trying to increase your nicotine mm. hit, you're going to do that you could probably adapt one of those leaf blowers <laughs> give it a try yes. <laughs> and so here, herein comes the the area as uh, people start to say well i use vaping to stop smoking traditional and the studies are a bit mixed and i'll be honest i tend to approach with caution the ones that say oh yes it can help you see cigarettes because it's the same act of smoking uh but look there is uh, some studies say it does some studies say that it doesn't uh i would be wary of the ones that say it does uh, that it does and i would check who's actually sponsoring that uh but there's also a risk to bystanders of secondhand smoke but it's believed to be less than traditional smoking. So, look, if we look at the three components of vapes, you have a solvent, you have a sweetener, and you have flavours. Delicious. Okay, so here we go. You'll love this. Mm -hmm. So you have a solvent. So this is the visible smoke that you see. Okay, so that's the cloud. Now, there's two main products that these can use. One's either vegetable glycerine, and that's made from vegetable oil. I picked that bit up. (laughs) Or the other one's propylene glycol, and that's a clear, slightly syrupy liquid. Uh, It's virtually odorless in colour, but that's what gives it the The vapour, the the, the, the sort of the cloud. We have two sweeteners, two main sweeteners. One is sucralose, Mm -hmm. and one is ethyl maltol. Uh, and again, I can't really say much about them because I don't know what the information about them is, but they make it sweeter for the person's experience. Probably those of us who don't vape are ingesting those sweeteners in all the mass-produced food. Exactly, they are. And so then we come to the flavours. Now, there's over 7,000 flavours that are done. This includes candy, fruit, soda, there's even alcohol. And it's clear what the purpose of these flavours are. Because, look, I'm guessing the 50-year-old biker is not arguing with his mate whether they've got, you know, blueberry, you know, vanilla or, uh, you know, whatever. So peppermint musk. Yeah, exactly. You know, they're not arguing over that. This is clearly a targeted strategy to to get young people on board. Now, here's the thing. All these ingredients are recognised as safe as it, for, from the FDA okay. as a food. Ah, and so we don't know what happens, and there's uncertainty when you aerosol these products and then inhale them. And so there is some studies, some suggestions that sucralose, so the sweetener, can become carcinogenic when you heat it and inhale it. Mm. And so when we look at flavors, we know that cinnamon becomes cytotoxic when inhaled. Really? So it can kill some cells inhaled and heated. And so there was a study from Yale University that valinanin, oh yes, the, the, the vanilla-based yeah, flavor, bean, yeah, a yeah. bean extract causes lung irritation and damage. And there's other ingredients that come along in, in this area as well, which is THC, so tetrahydrocannabinol, uh, as well as cannabidiol. So these are compounds from cannabis, from marijuana. They so, might be the ones that the theatre people are, are vaping. <laughs> Maybe, but here's the thing. They are usually added. Uh, they can be added, and it seems to have caused some problems when it's added because uh, that's some association with lung disease. Uh. But we're not quite sure. Again, we don't have that evidence at the moment. And so there have been other compounds found that haven't been labelled. So things like tin, lead, nickel, chromium, manganese, arsenic, even tobacco-specific uh, nitrosamines. These are all... They're in the they're, they're in there. So, but again, we don't know the full extent of how much they're in there. Yeah. Uh, are they in some and not others? Uh, much more male blokey for marketing, though, to have tin uh, vaping or mercury. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe that's a flavour. So yes. it's sort of you know. Wow. Uh, but and and look, that brings us to well, who's vaping? Mm. And you know, in two thousand and eighteen, we've got the National Health Interview Survey, and. The greatest increase of people who are vaping are between the ages of 18 and 24. Mm. Uh, and look, there's a, most people who use it 
were current cigarette smokers. Uh, but there's other studies in 2015, the US Surgeon General reported that there was a 900% increase in high school students using vaping. And so that's who's being targeted, that's who's yeah. taking it up, and that's who will continue. You have a 60, 70 year history of, of a uh, marketing to people who are already on board. And so that's a, uh, quite a strategy. At least when they're vaping, they're not using their mobile phones. <laughs> Well, so and and this brings us to the last part. So, has there been any instances of you know uh, disease? Uh, look, there's something called Avali, and this is e-cigarette or vaping-associated lung injury. Uh, the CDC in America has reported over 2,000 cases of this, uh, and and this is the, and 60 reported deaths. Uh, the diagnosis of Avali is a patient who has a history of vaping. And they're presenting with a flu-like illness and, and lung consolidation. Um, and then all other causes are, are excluded. Uh, so things like, you know, it's a flu or a pneumonia or, you know, bacterial cause, uh, COVID, whatever. Uh, other causes excluded. So that's the di- definition of a valley. So, but for these people who died, what they've found associated is these people most likely modified their vaping device. Uh, there was possible some usage of black market modified liquid that they used, particularly with the THC. And there was an association of an additive with vitamin E acetate. There is an association. Again, we don't really know the full extent of chronic. We do have some indication. uh, There was a Hong Kong study that uh, interviewed uh, 45,000 students. Uh, these students reported that there was increase associated with respiratory symptoms such as cough and phlegm. So there might be some irritation and that might go down that pathway again where normal cancer goes. And, and what we've found is that there is some associated chronic bronchitis symptoms. So that's where vaping is. We don't know the long-term effects of it. Mm. It's probably less than cigarettes, but it's more than not smoking. All right. Well, thanks for being a party pooper. Uh, No more vaping, no more smoking for some listeners, Uh, but fascinating insight. And just it's the devil in the detail, isn't it? There's all those other ingredients that are not on the list necessarily that can take us by surprise. All right. That's it. Smoko. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives when applicable can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there. And we'd love to have you along.